Quest for Truth, Episode 304. Quest for Truth, presented by Protectorate Productions and HPN, Heltsley Podcast Network. Now located at life-truth.com. And now, here are your hosts, with voices that will make you want to sterilize your earbuds, Keith Heltsley and Nathan Caldwell. Their pronouns aren't he, she, or even them. Here are Your Majesty and Your Honor. Welcome, everyone. This is your host, Keith. It's time for Quest for Truth. And uh, I will give you a warning. Uh, there are some kids in the house that are very quiet right now, so hopefully they'll continue. <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, it may not. Uh, I have, this is actually going to be at least a three-part series uh, that involves the question of what's different about what Catholics believe and Protestants believe. So it's a really big topic. Uh, <laughs> can't get through it in one session. In fact, I don't even think I can get through it adequately. In the three sessions that I have planned in this series, uh, I really wish that my co-host Nathan Caldwell could make it here today, but he couldn't. And uh, maybe we'll get him in here on our next session or two as we go through this. I would really love to have his input. Uh, Today's uh, items shouldn't be too controversial until maybe we get to the last one or two. Uh, So if he listens to this and wants to jump in, uh, we're in the studio again. Hey, I'd be more than glad to hear his take on some of this. Uh, instead, being the fact that it is Catholic versus Protestant, that much, not really. <laughs> uh, I don't have any Catholic uh, friends handy. I have Catholic friends, but just not handy uh, to um, pitch in with their side of the assembly issues. So I kind of did the next best thing. I kind of searched around on YouTube and I found, I tried to find uh, YouTube videos posted by Catholics, uh, brief apologetics of what they believe on these articles. And I tried uh, to find as many as I could. Some of the audio quality on a couple of them is not great because I had to record by holding a recorder next to the speakers and that's never a good thing. Um, You'll hear also um, a word from uh, some Christian apologetics who used to be Catholic and they weigh in on some of these articles. So I have some audio clips and I actually was just going to play straight up my original notes that I recorded when I first began studying up on this, as it were. But I had a lot of background noise, my computer, my headset. I didn't do a good sound check, and I had a lot of uh, bleed through out of my speakers. And there was excessive amounts of my computer voices talking to me, which may maybe interesting to some folks out there, but probably very annoying to others. Uh, as mentioned, uh, there are kids in the house, and that's going to be a big enough annoyance today to get through this. But I thought I would just re-record my notes. So it, if it was just my notes, it shouldn't be super long. We could probably get through this in less than a half an hour. By the time I drop in audio clips, we're looking at a pretty steep show here. (laughs) Probably less than an hour, I hope. I always shoot for less than an hour. Uh, So here we go. Another great show on the Christian Podcast Community.org is Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Hothals and Richard Story. Chris and Rich explore biblical theology and practical application in a weekly podcast. 
hosted by Chris Hothals and Richard Story. You can visit them at their webpage, slavetotheking.com. Slave to the King, Unworthy Rebels. Redeemed by the King of Kings and made servants fit for his use. I love their, their website name. That's where you can find everything you do. Let me tell you, uh, Richard is uh, a southern guy. Uh, he's a disabled guy in a wheelchair. Chris Hanhals is way out west there in Nevada someplace. Uh, but he uh, is also a great guy. I actually got to meet him not too long ago. And it was uh, a blessing to meet both him and his wife, actually. Great people, great podcast, and some really sincere and deep theology every single week slave to the let me just okay i hear some singing in the background we'll see if it turn if it shows up here or not because uh, i have a singing kid who likes to break in on me sometimes uh, anyway um what i did is i based my comparison First of all, I gathered a bunch of statements of faiths from about f- four different sources. Let's see, one, two, three, four, plus the Catholic source. Uh, of course, two are very similar. One will be from Nathan Caldwell's a Missionary Baptist denomination, which is taken from the ABA, American Baptist Association which is not the same as the American Baptist, which is very progressive liberal, is Nathan's denomination, and it's very similar to the Southern Baptist Convention, which I am a part of. The main difference is the ABA is very concise in its statements, whereas the Southern Baptists tend to be a little more verbose. Not that it's a bad thing, it's just um, it's a longer explanation. Uh, I am... I'm using the, from the Methodist, the Wesleyan Methodist Conference, Council. Uh, I forget what the C stands for, (laughs) WMC. Uh, And uh, in a similar vein to Methodist, we have the Pentecostals, which kind of grew out of Methodism about 100 years ago. And the, the chief player in that realm is the Assemblies of God. So I'm kind of picking from those categories of statements of faith. And I tried really hard to represent what the Catholics believe uh, using these audio clips, using a couple other sources. And I'm tying it all together with the Apostles' Creed. So there's the big explanation of what's happening uh, as we get started. So let's Look at Article 1. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, I don't think any other traditional Orthodox Christian faith would dispute this. Uh, for Now, in particular, the Southern Baptists put it this way. There's one God, one creator, redeemer, ruler of the universe. And this is... Um, notes. It's not the exact statement. Uh, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He reveals himself to us in three persons. The Assemblies of God puts it this way. He is the self-existing creator, redeemer of men, trinity, one being, three separate persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, working together in unity. The WCM, I knew I had, it was a C, but I couldn't, I had it backwards, <laughs> WCM. Uh, one God and three persons, Father, source of life, sovereign, holy, loving, grace to the sinner. Uh, and I, I think they're all saying the same thing, just bringing out different aspects of who God is. Hi guys, Ken Zinski from CatholicSpeaker.com. Today, let's talk about who is God or who do you think God is? Best image of God that we can have is the one that is true. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal God to us. He is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the second person of the Trinity, and He is the fullness of revelation. So Jesus and everything that He does, He reveals to us God. And one of the things that Jesus did is that He told us to call God Father. Isn't that amazing? Not boss, you know, not master, not force, but Father. And if He's Father, what does that make us? Sons and daughters. It means that we belong in a family. That we don't have to look over our shoulder in fear of punishment. That we don't have to look up to the boss to try and please him. We, that we have a we can have a intimate, personal relationship with God. Jesus revealed that God the Father knows every detail of your life. He cares for you. He relates with you personally. He calls you by name. He is always with you. He is gentle and patient. He is your provider. He is kind. And forgiving. My friends, God has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ to be your Father. The God is kind and forgiving, uh, and uh, I think none of us would disagree so far on who God the Father is. Article 2 And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Again, the various faiths have different ways of stating this. Some have more verbose ways of putting it than others. Now, I want to note that the Protestant faiths, when you read their statements, put what they had to say about Mary in with Jesus because Protestants don't have a separate standalone doctrine about Mary. Uh, it's just mentioned that she's connected with Jesus, as the virgin mother of Jesus. Um, for example, uh, the American Baptist Association puts it this way. Jesus shares God's divinity, born of a virgin man in the flesh. Uh, the SBC puts it this way, that Jesus is the eternal, divine Son of God. Uh, a virgin birth by the Holy Spirit, fully divine, fully human, sinless under law. The, he had held the substitutionary atonement. Oh, sorry, substitutionary penalty for sin, and he redeems all who believe. He mediates as a priest in heaven until his return. Uh, Assemblies of God says. His relation in Trinity is a mystery. I think it's not a mystery exactly, but I get why I get why they say that. Um, uh, he's God's Son. He's separate from the Father, separate from the Spirit. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is His proper name, and as His proper name, it relates His divinity. Now, I wouldn't say Jesus Christ is His proper name. Jesus is His proper name. Christ is His title. As his proper name, Son of Man, relates his humanity. In other words, you're saying he is 100% God, 100% man. Uh, the Wesleyans put it this way. Uh, the Son receives life from the Father. He reveals a Father to man, born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, fully divine, fully human, sacrificed himself once for all, intercedes for the saints until his return. Now, the Catholics put it this way, God's only Son, our Lord. This attests that he is a Son of God. He is most certainly divine. He intercedes by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of Mary. Uh, he has human nature, crucified, died, was buried. His human nature signifies he could feel pain and actually die. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Uh, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. His human body will live forever, and all humanity who believe in him hope to follow God in the flesh because he loves us and wants to teach us his love. 
So who is Jesus? The first thing to get really clear about is that Jesus walked the earth. This is indisputable. The modern culture tries sometimes to present Jesus in the same category as uh, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And this is ludicrous. And you're smarter than that. We need to start thinking about Jesus on a deeper level than the popular culture. How do we know Jesus actually existed? Well, the most comprehensive presentation of Jesus' life is in the Gospels. And the scriptures clearly establish that Jesus lived in a particular place and at a particular time in history. They're not vague about when he lived or where he lived. In fact, they go to great lengths to establish his birth in the context of world history. But the best evidence to establish that Jesus actually walked the earth is not in Christian writings, but in secular writings and other religious traditions. You see, the secular historians of his time wrote about Jesus. And Jewish writers agree that Jesus walked the earth at the same time and place that the Gospels establish. It's also worth noting that the other major world religions all acknowledge Jesus. This is important because all these other religions are rivals of Christianity in some way. The easiest way for these rival religions to disprove Christianity would be to demonstrate that Jesus never actually lived. But they're unable to do that. You see, Jesus, he's not a figment of Christian imagination. He lived at a certain time and he lived in a certain place. He walked the earth just like you and I are today. But let's go deeper. Who was Jesus? One day, Jesus was walking down the road with his disciples, and he asked them two questions. The first question, who do people say that I am? His disciples replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Others say you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. The second question Jesus asked his disciples was, who do you say that I am? I call this the Jesus question, and everyone has to answer it for themselves. You can't avoid the question. Not answering the question is answering the question. And you'll notice Jesus didn't ask his disciples who they thought he was on the first day he met them. By the time he asked them, they'd been at his side for almost three years. So perhaps before you answer the Jesus question, we should take another look at Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he really taught, and what all of that means to you and me in the modern world. The culture wants to reduce Jesus to just a nice guy. And not even the nicest guy, but just, you know, Jesus is a nice guy. There's lots of nice guys, and Jesus is one of the nice guys. This is tragic. So who is Jesus? There are many ways to answer the question. He's a Galilean, a Jew, a carpenter, an itinerant preacher, a miracle worker, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Chosen One, the Messiah, C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers of the 20th century and the creator of the Narnia series, says we really only have three choices when it comes to Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Messiah he claims to be. Other major world religions acknowledge Jesus as a great teacher or a great prophet, which seems very accommodating and tolerant, but there are several problems with this position. First, Jesus never claimed to be a great teacher or a great prophet. He claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah. If he isn't the Messiah, he's either a liar or a lunatic, but not a great teacher and great prophet. These things are incongruent. Let's get really clear about something. If Jesus is not the Messiah, he's the biggest liar in the history of the world. You cannot be the biggest liar in history and still be a great teacher or a great prophet. These things don't go together. They're incongruent. And more than just being a liar, if Jesus is not the Christ, he perpetrated the biggest fraud in human history. Now, I suppose there, there's always the option that uh, Jesus was a lunatic, you know, that he was mentally ill. Asylums are full of people with the Messiah complex, but there is no record of anyone of any credibility claiming to be the Messiah before Jesus. And I suspect you can't name someone who's claimed to be the savior of the world since Jesus. You see, the Messiah complex is a post-Jesus phenomenon. If Jesus was a lunatic, could the early Christians really have kept that a secret? I mean, the scale of the conspiracy that would be required to conceal Jesus as a lunatic makes it more than improbable. And if he was just a lunatic, 
They could have easily proved he was just a lunatic and simply locked him up. There would have been no need to crucify him because it would have been so easy to discredit him. If they could have proved that he was a lunatic, they would have had no reason to feel threatened by him and no reason to kill him. But he was considered by both secular and religious authorities to be much more dangerous than a simple lunatic. So who is Jesus? He's the Galilean carpenter who became an itinerant preacher, who turned water into wine, made the lame walk and the blind see, walked on water, multiplied a handful of loaves and fishes to feed thousands of men, women, and children, got under the skin of the secular and religious leaders of his day, was executed on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, rose from the dead. Jesus wasn't a great teacher. He was the greatest teacher. He wasn't a great prophet. He was the greatest prophet. But more importantly, Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Okay. Uh, but it does say all the right things. Uh, Jesus is, it was a historic person. He was a Galilean carpenter, a Jew. He was not a liar or a lunatic. He was indeed Lord. And I can get on board with that. Um, there's going to be more on Mary coming up next. Uh, the only thing I would kind of question is I heard him say that Jesus reveals God. Um, I, I guess so. Uh, Jesus, to me, uh, the real uh, special thing there, uh, besides being fully God, fully man, is that his main role was to come to the earth and pay a penalty that we couldn't pay ourselves, uh, and, it, and it, we do receive life through him. Uh, John six, it talks about God gives life to the Son. The Son is the bread of life who gives life to the world, uh, particularly those who believe in him, uh, who uh, commune with him through this bread of life. Uh, we talked about that in the recent. Uh, couple months ago now, I guess, uh, Truth Exposed episode. Let's move on. Article 3, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of Virgin Mary. Okay, before I get going, I'm not going to talk a lot about conceived of the Holy Ghost. Um, I My first reaction was, they didn't give the Holy Ghost much airtime here, but he shows up a little more prominently later on in this uh, creed. So I'm not going to say anything about him at this time. The big thing here is born of the Virgin Mary. Now, traditional Christian faith don't disagree that she was a virgin, he was born of a virgin, and this person's name was Mary. Here's what the Catholics say. She's a mother of God, conceived without sin, remains perpetual virgin, presumed into heaven at her death. And I think what they mean is she died, and then both her body as well as her spirit mysteriously went to heaven. Uh, I, I, I kind of find that hard to swallow. But that, I think, is what that means to be assumed into heaven. She didn't. Jesus was ascended he went while he was living into heaven but she had to wait until she died for that to happen anyway uh sorry about a little bit of a bunny trail as i mentally discussed that with myself <laughs> um they say that she is not worshipped but she's prayed to since prayer is not worship um now let's listen to this audio clip from a Catholic source. Why do Catholics worship Mary? Made for glory by you Catholic. When people ask me why do Catholics worship Mary, the first answer I have to say is we don't worship Mary. So let, let, that, let the record show, spoiler alert, Catholics don't worship Mary. But then the further question is, why do you pray to her? Why do you venerate her? Why do you spend so much time talking about her as Catholics? It's, it's viewed a lot of times by non-Catholics with a bit of suspicion. And I think it's important that we clarify that. Why do we hold Mary in such esteem? Why is she so important in the Catholic Church? It's important for me to think about it in terms of the question, 
where would you be without your mother? And the answer to that question is, you wouldn't be here, because all of us came from a mother. And the shocking reality of Christianity is at the very heart and center of Christianity is something that we call the incarnation, that God became man, so that God truly became man without ceasing to become God, became true man, that he, and he took on his humanity, took his flesh in the womb of Mary, so he received his humanity from Mary, so that for nine months, Mary carried the Word made flesh, Jesus, in her very body, that she gave birth to the Word made flesh through her body, that she fed the Word made flesh with her body, that the Word made flesh, Jesus, as he grew, as he uh, eventually would go around teaching, as he eventually would uh, be arrested and suffer and crucify and die, that he gives up his body and blood to save us, that he received that body and blood from Mary. With that in mind, everything when we talk about Mary, Mary as, as one that intercedes on our behalf, that's not because she's a, a, the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity. That's because she's someone who is especially close to God. Actually, no human person has ever been closer to God than Mary. So just like you have friends that you say, hey, I'm going through this struggle, and I know you're close to God. I know you pray. Can you pray for me? And many friends will say yes to that and will even maybe pray for you right there, which is a beautiful thing. That we believe that Mary is as close to God as anyone could possibly be, not only here on earth, but now that she's with God in heaven especially. So when we ask Mary, Mary, pray for us. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. We're saying that because we know that she's close to God and she intercedes on our behalf. And that she is, gives us a great example to not only as being the mother of Jesus, but also as a, being a disciple. So when we talk to Mary, when we love Mary, have a devotion to her, we are talking to and loving and having a devotion to the one that Jesus himself talked to and loved and had a devotion to, just like every person that has a good mother has a devotion to their mother as well. So when we talk about Mary, when we lift up Mary as Catholics, it's never to put down Jesus. It's always because of who Jesus is that we rejoice in the great gift that his mother Mary is to each one of us. Okay, they insist that she is not worshipped, but she's prayed to, and she is worthy of being venerated or honored because of her close relationship with Jesus. Nobody, I'll agree, nobody has ever been as close to Jesus as what Mary was. Um, she's a mediator to a mediator. Uh, that's the view, and I get why they say that, but it's redundant. Um, <laughs> If you have a mediator, you go to the mediator. I guess she's like the secretary to the office. I don't know. Uh, I'm just kind of being kind of snarky there. Sorry. Um, now, also, they mentioned that she's the perfect disciple. Now, that's a good concept. I never really thought of it that way. Really? You know why? Because Protestants don't really teach that. But if you think about what they mean behind the statement is she was there from his birth. She was a follower all through his raising. She was there. Uh, one of the last ones mentioned at his death, one of the last ones. So she was there through the whole thing. And so that, I, in a way, would make her the uh, a, a perfect disciple, I guess. Uh, I, I, would, I would challenge that. I would need more convincing. Uh, now, this is just a, a few small clips from uh, a, a YouTube channel called On the Box with Ray Comfort. It features Mark Pence and someone else. I never could catch the guy's name. I, you know, I don't even think he said it. Uh, it's kind of about an 18, 20 minute clip. Uh, but I just grabbed a few key points that they make. Uh, I know Ray Comfort's background. I'm pretty sure I should say should say, I'm pretty sure, is that he comes from a Jewish background, but the two co-hosts with him both have Catholic backgrounds. So it's interesting to see their take on this. Uh, there's this uh, issue going on inside the Catholic Church about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Was Mary a perpetual virgin until she died? Well, the answer would be no. My question for our Catholic friends and family would be, why would she need to be? As if sex is a bad thing. Sex is a gift of God. In fact, I believe it is the wedding gift that God has created for a man and a woman when they get married. We as Protestants, as Christians, 
highly respect Mary. We honor Mary. But there's a fine line between that and what's going on with many Catholics in relation to her. And by the way, we believe that Jesus was conceived by Mary when she was a virgin. Again, some Catholics, I think, have a misconception about our views on that. Misconception. That's Mis- oh, clever. boy. Thank you, Ray Comfort. <laughs> Always pointing good things out. But, but anyhow, th- it's important for us to clarify that. But, but the point I want to make as well is that we understand that the Catholic Church's official doctrine does not teach that Catholics should worship Mary. They, they don't actually even officially teach that Catholics are to pray to Mary per se or the saints, but, that, but they are intercessors on our behalf. We understand that. But here's a question. What does it look like practically? You know, I remember right. being in Lebanon years ago, and uh, I was sharing the gospel with my family members. Like, like we've said before, I come from a, uh, a very uh, deeply uh, religious Catholic family. Mark Spence comes from a Catholic background as well. And so I was sharing the gospel with my Catholic family in Lebanon. And I was talking with one of my relatives, and I was telling them how I, you know, I know the Catholic Church does not teach that we should worship Mary. And they said, of course we should worship Mary. I said, no, 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 we don't. So I turned to one of my cousins who was actually a seminarian in the Catholic Church who had gone through seminary. And I, and I looked to him as, as one who was going to verify what I was saying. I said, hey, uh, the Catholic Church teaches that we shouldn't worship Mary, right? And he goes, what are you talking about? Of course we should worship Mary. And this is a seminarian who was schooled in the dogma and teachings of the Catholic Church. Even though it doesn't officially teach that, that was the perception. Mm-hmm. And so Catholics will say, no, we don't worship Mary. We venerate her. Mm. We honor her. But friends, it's not what you call it. It's what it is in actuality. <laughs> uh, and so again, looking at scripture, because that is our standard. First John 5.21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's an explicit command in scripture. First uh, Timothy two five again we've talked about this before for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus and a lot of my Catholic friends as I've dialogued with them about this will appeal to emotion mm. um, they'll imme- appeal to sentiment and they'll use analogies like you know if you want to talk to your dad and you just don't know how to ask him well you'll you know maybe you'll go to your mom and ask her to go and to plead your case before him and so forth. Friends, the problem with that, and again, the problem with getting into tradition that violates, we believe in tradition as Protestants, absolutely, and Scripture talks about keeping traditions, but not traditions that would conflict with the revealed will of God and His Word. So um, when you do that, you get into doctrines like uh, the, you know, the Immaculate Conception. You get into doctrines like the Assumption that Mary, her body and soul were assumed into heaven. Um, you get into doctrines like the, you know, Mary being a co-redemptrix, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But, but as far as you know, using Mary as a, as a mediator or an intercessor, why didn't the godly, pious Jews in Christ's time and even before that, why didn't they make sculptures of Moses mm. or of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? You know, why didn't they ask them to intercede and, and you know, talk to them by way of prayer, so to speak, so they could pray on their behalf? Right. I yeah. mean, if this was something that, that was important, you would think they would have done it. Now, are we saying that all Catholics are on their way to hell? Absolutely not. But what we are saying is that if you are a saved, born-again Catholic, it is in spite of the official teaching, despite it, not because of the official teaching. Because the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is contrary to Scripture. And I know that is a bold statement to make. But they are the ones who tell us Protestants that we are anathema. That if you hold to justification by faith, that you are accursed. Right. So there is a distinction that needs to be made there. Absolutely, Mark. Very good points. Um, They open up a can of worms. They say, Scripture is the standard and not to let tradition or emotion uh, conflict with scripture. Uh, now, I say they open up a can of worms because th- this topic doesn't really get addressed by this Apostles' Creed, but it is one it is very huge, huge difference between what Catholics believe and what Protestants believe. Uh, I'll only say this, uh, Protestants believe in solo scriptura, which means scripture alone is the authority uh, that we get 
are revelations about who God is. And Catholics will say, well, uh, what you're saying then, if I hear you correctly, is you believe that everything about God can be known through the scripture. Like, no, that's not what we said. We said, we, there, there's a way more to know about God than the scripture even hopes to contain. But here's what you can count on. Everything in the scripture is 100% uh, authentic and authoritative about God. There's a lot we don't know. We, we really don't. But what is there, we can trust as our final only authority. We don't need any outside source. And the Catholics have been big proponents to yeah, yeah, okay, well, uh, the scripture uh, is God's word. Yeah, we believe that. But we also think it's equally important to understand the traditions of the church and the the body of you know doctrinal teachings, which is the proper name for that is, the, I think, magisterium. Uh, it just means wise teachings or something like that. Um, but they believe that Basically, I guess in Protestant terms, all, all of your collected Sunday school lessons that were put together, <laughs> there you go. They believe that that's just as, as authoritative. Uh, the collected doctrines, in, in fact, probably even more so than the Bible, is that. When it comes to the Bible, it's it's open to a lot of interpretation, which is rightly so but I think a lot of the misinterpretation comes from uh, taking things out of context, twisting things to fit your preconceived notion, which is, uh, there's a term for that, but it escapes my mind right now. Uh, but anyway, they bring up this statement, are Catholics doomed? Well, no, uh, they say they are justified by grace, just like anybody else, but they're justified in spite of what they are taught and believe, instead of because of that. And that's very powerful. That, that, that goes for anybody, no matter what your background is, whether it be Jewish, Catholic, or other. Uh, you're saved by only one way. Uh, and you can find it by accident. You know, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, so I'm told. <laughs> anyway, let's wrap this up with this final one, uh, Article 4. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. Now, there is some divergence here. Uh, and honestly, a lot of the divergence isn't really a Protestant or Catholic thing. It's how you interpret the Bible and how much weight you put on the statement. A, a creed that's not scriptural. But it's it's based on scripture. I'll go for that, and I don't disagree with this entirely. Uh, Pontius Pilate, for one thing, Catholics claim that he's put here uh, more for a historical record. You know, it's, it's factual. He was put to death by Pontius Pilate. It's not to vilify him or to uh, put any kind of a light, good or bad or otherwise. It's just a matter of fact. And I think Christians would agree with that. But Christians generally don't even mention Pontius Pilate in his statements or creeds or anything. Um, the fact that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, again, uh, I think all Orthodox traditional Christian f flavors would agree this is what happened, a historical, factual thing. And it is the price, the, the penalty of what sin costs. <laughs> I always get amused that there's a song out there, uh, how's the chorus go? I'll never know what it costs to see the Lord upon the cross. I, I'm getting the words all wrong, but I think maybe you know the song I'm talking about. Well, the, the singer says, well, don't, we don't know. What it costs Jesus? Well, yes, we do. Right here, it cost him to be crucified and dead and buried. That's the price. That's what it costs <laughs> to take sin away uh, and for eternal 
God and for eternal sins. It takes an eternal sacrifice. Uh, it, it says he descended to hell, and Catholics will point out that hell should not be intended to be understood as uh, the uh, place of punishment or lake of fire. Uh, and Protestants, uh, if they um, teach us at all, they try to be clear that Jesus was indeed dead and his body really was in the grave. But to, to do more than that is to kind of branch into the realm of superstition. And what I mean by that is there are people who say that uh, he Jesus died and he went to hell and he had to suffer there or he uh, preached to people or spirits or demons. Uh, all these things, well, they're good ideas, but it's not known and all there is is speculation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's listen to this clip. Where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? By God Questions Ministries 9. Today's question is, where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? A key passage in the discussion on where was Jesus for the three days in between his death and resurrection is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, which says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The word spirit refers to Christ's spirit. The contrast is between his flesh and spirit, not between Christ's flesh and the Holy Spirit. Christ's flesh died, but his spirit remained alive. Jesus' body was in the tomb, of course, but his spirit, having departed at his death, was elsewhere for those three days. Peter gives a little bit of specific information about what happened in those three days between Jesus' death and resurrection. The KJB says that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. The Greek word used simply means that Jesus heralded a message. The NIV translates it as made proclamation. Jesus suffered and died on the cross, his body being put to death, but his spirit was still alive, and he yielded it to the Father. According to Peter, sometime in between Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus made a special proclamation to some imprisoned spirits. Where were these imprisoned spirits to whom Jesus spoke between his death and resurrection? Nowhere in the Bible are we told that Jesus visited hell. The idea that Jesus went to hell in order to continue his suffering is unbiblical. His suffering ended when he said it is finished upon the cross in John 19, verse 30. The New American Standard Bible says that Jesus went to Hades in Acts chapter 2, verse 31. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, in the NASB and NIV, makes a clear distinction between Hades and the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the permanent, final place of judgment for the lost. Hades is a temporary place for both the lost and the Old Testament saints. At some time, between his death and resurrection, Jesus also visited a place where he delivered a message to the spirit beings, probably fallen angels. See Jude chapter 1 verse 6. And these spirits were probably imprisoned because they were somehow involved in the grievous sin before the flood in Noah's time. Peter does not tell us what Jesus proclaimed to the imprisoned spirits, but it could not have been a message of redemption since angels cannot be saved. That is, after securing salvation on the cross, Jesus brought Abraham, David, Joshua, Daniel, the beggar Lazarus, the thief on the cross, and everyone else who had previously been justified by faith and led them from Hades to their new spiritual home. All this is to say that the Bible isn't entirely clear what exactly Christ did for the three days between his death and resurrection. Now, did you notice that? It says that in between his death and his resurrection, Jesus proclaimed to spirits. Now, he did say that he, he did not visit hell, but he did make it clear that we really don't know who these spirits might have been. Uh, possibly, uh, Jesus was leading Old Testament saints to heaven. And I, you know, I've heard that, and I can kind of go for that, because there 
is a passage in, I think it's Ephesians, where it talks about the Holy Spirit as a down payment for our future glory. Well, the faith of the Old Testament saints, we'll call them, was their down payment on their future hope in Christ. So did Jesus lead them into heaven? Uh, that means where were they exactly? Purgatory? Uh, I don't know if I want to buy that or not. Maybe they were already there. Maybe he just went for homecoming. I don't know. Uh, there's also, so if I have time for this clip, uh, it's just, this is, well, no, I won't play it. I'll just describe it because it really it almost says exactly the same thing. There's uh, from Southern Seminary, uh, a, I don't know who the guy was, but he was given almost exactly the same talk uh, about where Jesus went to, and we really don't know, was it this, was it that? And the only thing different he added was that um, this, you know, in First Peter talks about he went back and proclaimed, and somewhere else he went back and proclaimed. Well, the, the slippery slope here is that in Luke, on the cross, the there was the one thief that uh, expressed his belief, and Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Paradise being uh, the word garden. Um, but he's saying, this day, we're going to die this day. <laughs> and he says, you will be with me. So wherever Jesus went when he died, it must have been a garden, from what that statement in Luke says. So that makes it kind of troublesome. Well, now, let me wrap up with just stating how the Catholics put a lot of importance on tradition and their own doctrine, as I mentioned, known as the Magisterium. Um, and I listened to one clip, it was about an hour long, I don't want to even present it, but essentially the, the guy, I guess he was a priest, was shooting all kinds of holes in the Bible and its reliability and how can you trust it? It's a translation of Greek and how can you trust that the translators are actually using good copies of Greek? And by the way, don't you know that it's us Catholics who are the keepers of the crypt, as it were, who compiled all these shreds of manuscripts through the ages? And I'm thinking... Well, are you bragging or complaining? Because, yes, well, thank you very much for uh, historically uh, being keepers of the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of reasons I think he overplayed that hand. Uh, but, again, um, just because we say uh, only Scripture, what that means is Scripture is enough. It is sufficient to reveal enough about who God is for us to know who God is. Just like you have a dot-to-dot -dot puzzle, you get so far into connecting dots, and say, oh, this looks like the shape of a dog. Well, even when you have it completed, it's just a kind of a blocky outline of a dog. Uh, there's a lot more detail that can be added to let you know, hey, this is a dog. But you have it enough. Scripture is enough to let us connect the dots to know who God is. And anything in there we know and we can be sure is 100% His Word. Uh, and just because it's not in there, it doesn't mean that a certain thing doesn't apply to God. Maybe it does, maybe it don't. But what does it matter? What does it matter? Um, because if it mattered, they would be in there. Um, and if a translation of Scripture cannot be trusted, how do we know the customs of the church can be trusted? Because traditions can be easily proven false by archaeology. It's traditional. There's three wise men that came to Jesus' birth at Christmas, right? Well, if you dig through archaeology, uh, early Christians noted that there was as little as two, as many as twelve. But uh, the con over the centuries, it kind of got whittled down to three. Uh, tradition says they have names. 
the earliest traditions have no mention of names. How do you know those traditions can be trusted if archaeologists shoots them down? How do you know if translation of the Bible is a problem? How do you know that the preaching uh, and language that the church uses, by church, I mean Catholic church, how do you know that you're saying those sermons the same way the apostles did? You don't, because A, they're not written down, they're not recorded, and all you have to go by is customs, and if your customs are fallible, then so are uh, your doctrines, your magisterium fallible. The one thing that can be massively proven is if the Bible has it in writing, you can trace that through piles and piles of manuscripts, uh, often back to within at least the first couple of hundred years, because the oldest manuscripts we have date from around three to five hundred years-ish. Drop a close. So, wow, that's what I have to wrap up with that, some bonus things about scripture. Um, I, I know this is going to be way longer than I intended it to be, so I'm going to just stop talking and say this is your host, Keith, signing off. Thanks for listening, and next week we'll continue with the next four articles of uh, the Apostles' Creed, comparing uh, the faiths uh, and see how things stack up, because lots more controversy is in the wings. Visit life-truth.com where you can find all our shows. Leave a message or call our voicemail number at 401-753-4844. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash life truth page. Follow us on Twitter at capital H, capital P, capital N, capital C, A-S-T. Everything Nathan Caldwell does can be found at facebook.com forward slash protectors of the book. Music in the show is used by permission of Kevin Zerby at zerbinator.wordpress.com. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May you find everything you need. And if you don't know Jesus, your greatest need is a Savior. Thanks for listening.